The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. It's spring quarter. It's quickly uh, progressing on us. And it's that time of year where those, those questions start coming with a little more frequency and maybe they start to feel a little heavier as you get them. The questions that we all receive, right, are just kind of the basics. Hey, what are you doing this summer? You know, who are you going to live with? What are you going to do? You know, are you going to ask her out? Ooh, okay. Those are the questions that, that, we're, that we're often familiar with. Well, if you are a senior, okay, if you're getting ready to graduate, those questions ramp up a little bit heavier, right? What are you doing next year? Do you have a job yet? They start to get a little bit heavier. And then, of course, what might be the most torturous, and I know that, that again, we all experience this, are when the big questions, when, when it's actually not anybody else asking the questions of you, it's actually you asking the question yourself, asking the questions of yourself. From our good friends at, at BuzzFeed, some of those questions are this. Okay, why does it feel like I'm the only one who doesn't have a job lined up? Oh my gosh, I suck. Okay, I, I love this one. These freshmen don't know how good they have it. Yeah, no, <laughs> question mark. You know, oh, what I'd give for another four years, right? Uh, another one is, what if these actually were the best years of my life? It's all downhill from here. Okay, my favorite one yet, okay, think of this again as an internal dialogue. Is it creepy for me to have a crush on freshmen and Facebook stalk them? <laughs> oh, but they're just so cute. Have I cleaned, okay, and then, and then, <laughs> and then there's, there's that, there's that question, you know, as you're, as you're going into that next job interview where you're going, oh my gosh, have I cleaned up my social media presence? And you're going, did I remember to take that picture down of me trying to get the, the neighborhood stray dog to do a keg stand or whatever it might be, okay? And then, of course, the one that by the time you get to Dune, no doubt there, there is that sense if you're a senior of going, is it okay for me to punch the next person that asked me what my post-graduation plans are, okay? We struggle with some of these questions. Now, these questions come at us, of course, because they're rather important questions. Uh, for some of you that, that live down south, I'll, I'll, it seems like I've seen this sign just uh, right around the Tacoma Mall where there's this big neon sign that says, Jesus is the answer, Okay, it's a, a sign that's easily seen from, from Interstate 5 as you're driving by. And I found myself over the years reflecting on, okay, Jesus is the answer, but what is the question? Especially in light of the fact that we do get these, these questions that, that we, we make light of and these questions that sometimes hit us pretty heavy. Uh, they, can, uh, they can even make us feel a sense of shame, inadequacy, or confusion. Jesus is the answer, but what indeed is the question? Well, that's what we want to spend our time reflecting on during the rest of this school year, throughout spring quarter. 
is that sometimes we have this perception that the God of the Bible only speaks declarations, tells you things you should do, tells you things that you should not do. But what we encounter in Scripture is a God that is very interested in a dialogue, a God that asks us a lot of questions. And so we are going to look at some of the questions that, that God asks us. We're going to, to look at the questions that, that the Lord God, Yahweh, asks us in the Old Testament. And we will do something similar with the questions that Jesus asks us in the New. And I want you to notice, how are these questions asked from God? Maybe a little bit different than the ones that you get asked from even the most well-meaning people in your life, even those that are the most for you. Now, what I want to emphasize in this whole thing, the kind of the goal if you show up every week and engage these questions together, is that we would understand God's purpose for our lives over and above God's plan for our lives. Now, when I think about my own life, and when I think about so many of the conversations that I've had with students over the years, there can be this incredibly heavy feeling of, it is up to me to find the right job that I'm supposed to do, the right calling in my life, the right spouse. And if I don't find that right thing, then I'm sinning. We put a tremendous amount of pressure on us to somehow identify God's plan for my life and go, doggone it, I better find it. What we want to emphasize here, before we get into the nitty gritty of God's plan for our lives, and I get why, why that whole idea of, of this really narrow plan is, is appealing, that in the words of the psalmist, if, if God knows the number of hairs on each of our heads, certainly there would be a similarly narrow plan for our lives. And I don't know, maybe there is. But what we want to emphasize in this, is before we get into that nitty gritty God has a purpose for our lives as well that is much bigger than a narrow plan. Now, in this series, I hope you're able to gain a few tools, and ultimately, I hope there's a sense of freedom that comes with it. Now, it's especially important for tonight. Now, those of you that were here throughout the, the second half of last quarter and even last week as you heard Daniel wrap up our series on the I Am statements, the, exploring these questions will be a lot more fruitful if you keep in mind the character of God that we just studied, a character of God that is gracious, that is deeply invested in us, God's people that is loving, that is kind, that is generous. Because as we hear some of these questions, some of them could come off as a bit harsh, if not judgmental. No doubt they're direct. Let's keep in mind the character of God as we explore some of these questions together. All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump right in. God, I pray that as we get started on this series, that we would know you more, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That we would have a better grasp of your purpose as we engage the, question at, the questions asked of your people in the Bible. So help us with this task. 
Lord Jesus, speak to us. Empower us as your people. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Seems appropriate to me that we would start a series on the questions that God asked by looking at the very first question that God asked in all the Bible. And it's probably not shocking that to do that, we would go back to the very beginning of it and begin in the book of Genesis. Now, many of you know the broad strokes of this story at the very beginning of the Bible, that God created the world. He did it in six days, and and it says, it's emphasized that he created it good. It's a picture that that follows of, of, of humanity, of man and God living together and working in perfect harmony in the Garden of Eden. They're working together. Genesis 2.15 says that the Lord God put him, Adam, in the garden to work it and take care of it and enjoy the bounty of it except for one tree. After this, this man and this woman, Adam and Eve, lived together helping to care for the garden and chapter two of Genesis finishes by noting that they were both naked and they felt no shame. No shame, no sense of thinking about themselves there in the garden. So we pick up the story at the beginning of chapter three. Some verses that in many ways can be difficult for some of us to hear. It says this, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Notice that God's the one that created it. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the, fr- from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. <laughs> you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to to man, here it is. Here's a question. Where are you? Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Where are you? It's the first question asked of humanity in the Bible. Now, many of you know what follows. And it's very unpleasant. The ground is cursed. Childbearing is made difficult and painful for women. And Adam and Eve are eventually cast from the garden. And of course, because of this, this is not the most popular series of verses in the Bible because it sounds like bad news, right? It explains kind of how this experience of sin came about. Now, I know for me, the first uh, th- there's a lot of questions that, that come up in this, and I'm not going to take all these on tonight. 
Uh, if you want to take more of these on, I would point you towards our apologetics classes and Dwayne Morris. But there is one thing. I, I want to take on one question because I think it's important for what we're doing, okay? Why would a loving God even take the risk of creating a serpent and then dropping a tree down that has what turns out to be such dire consequences? Okay, what I want to offer to you that, that, that again, that I think is important is that if the one, the God that we're talking about is in fact a God of love, then there has to be a degree of choice involved. Whether we're talking about the serpent, whether we're talking about the man and the woman, there has to be a degree of choice. If there is no choice, how are we anything other than robots? That there has to be a sense of, of, of decision-making, of choice that's there. And, and one of the things that we discover that this tree symbolizes, as I read it, is this, this uh, reality that people have been empowered to choose because it can only be love, this type of love that, that we see, agape love, if there is a choice involved. Now, what we want to be concerned with here moving forward is simply the reality that this is an explanation of how sin entered the world, all right? And no doubt, every person in this room Okay, even as we can dissect this and talk all about it and, and break down all the questions, what I want to pay attention to is that here is an explanation of how sin came into the world. Now, a few other reflections uh, before we, we continue uh, and, and we, we uh, kind of get into the more practical stuff. First, I think it's interesting to note how the serpent works. It's all the same language with the addition of one word, not. Okay, you see how, how the serpent was crafty and, and tried to, to trick Eve? Instead of, of, of saying, oh, there's only one tree you're not supposed to eat of, the serpent approaches it by saying, oh, didn't God say something that God didn't really say? And Eve comes back with, with a, a good answer. It's described as good for food. The, the tree looks good. It's pleasing to the eye, good for food, desirable for gaining wisdom. Um, and this is the first thing we need to notice about this text, that there was something desirable that was noticed, something that was pleasing to the eye. We have this experience, right? You've probably had this experience throughout your life of, of going, ooh, that looks good. I'll go over there without really thinking about some of the consequences. Uh, a story that I can think of uh, is when I was, I must have been about four and a half, five years old. There's a family reunion. I'm with all my cousins. You know, the sun's out, and we, we go to this pool. And I, I mean, I'm a kid. I'm stoked. I can't, I can't believe I'm, I'm at a pool with all of my family and my cousins. And as, as we get into this pool, I'm, I, I remember saying to the, to my cousin, Andy, let's go. You know, I go running and jumping into the water. And I remember as I was in the water, I, 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 mean, I still remember this. I turned my head to the right. And the, the next scene is pretty curious because here comes my dad, fully dressed, okay, wearing his pink uh, cashmere members-only sweater, similar to the color of my pants right now. 
Okay, and he comes into the water. Why is, why is my dad jumping into the water with his clothes on? Oh, it's because I didn't have my water wings on and I don't know how to swim. Okay, the pool looked good to my eyes. I was fired up to go running and, and, and jumping into the water without really thinking about the consequences therein. That one of the ways that, that, we, that we interact with this choice is by seeing that which looks good, which is pleasing to the eye, which is desirable for some good things. Now, from here, the story reveals that this man and his wife proceed to hide from God as they heard him. Now, remember how chapter two ended by saying they felt no shame in the garden. They lived in harmony and they put no energy into thinking about themselves. And what I want to point out, what immediately changes after, after they have this fruit is that they go from having no feeling of shame, no need for self-awareness, no insecurities, no coverings for themselves to being very concerned about themselves. Did you catch that? That the rest of the story that we just read, all of the energy that we see from this man and this woman goes into hiding. But what happens when sin enters the pictures is instead of being in harmony with God and being consumed with that which is outside of us, this garden, our creator, all of a sudden we become consumed with ourselves. And then, of course, the question, where are you? Now, I am so glad that this, is a, this question is in Scripture. Now, it's a rhetorical question, right? If God is God, there wouldn't really be a need for God to, to ask the question. It seems to me that God would know. But nonetheless, God asked the question, where are you? And I'm so glad it's in there because I think it communicates to us that God is interested in where his beloved creation is. God is interested in where Adam and Eve are and God is interested in where you are. And I'm also grateful for the honest response that Adam get, gives. I was afraid because I was naked. I was vulnerable. I was weak. And so I hid. We'll unpack this a little bit more throughout the quarter, but isn't this consistent with, with much of the experience that we have living in this world, the sense of feeling weak and vulnerable and afraid and putting energy into trying to hide that. Where are you? What do we do with this? I think that out of this text, in the first talk in this series, and as we reflect throughout the quarter, there's three honest reflections that we're invited to in this text. The first is to be honest about what is appealing to us, to you, right now. As we were told, the woman in our story looked at that fruit. It was pleasing to the eye, good for food and wisdom. And as we seek God's purpose for our lives we need to be honest about what it is that has our attention. What's appealing to you right now? 
Is it an opportunity that looks prestigious? Is it a particular salary or lifestyle? Is it pleasure? What is it that you pursue because it just, it looks good at your first glance? Particularly in my early 20s, I experienced, I know along with many of my peers, the desire, the desire to be famous. And my star lust, as, as we called it, when we, when we would be brave enough to talk about it, uh, certainly has faded as I've gotten a little bit older and as my life has changed in, you know, by and large in ways that were pretty positive. I had one friend, though, who's a fantastic musician. And in his intense star lust, really sank himself into uh, this, this music. But as the expectations around becoming famous as a musician didn't come to fruition, it, it wasn't that he sank into this deep, dark despair or got addicted to drugs or anything like that. Simply what happened is there began to be a, a loss of the joy that came along with pursuing music. There was a consequence to pursuing uh, this thing where we, were, where, where we were focused on ourselves, where my friend was focused on himself. This passage invites us to consider what is it that has our attention? What is our star lust? Second, an honest reflection on what are we putting our energy into? What are you putting your energy into? Is it to cover something up? Is it to hide something? Is it to try and be something other than what you understand yourself to be? Uh, I love to, I love to, to, to share about my kids anytime I can. I'm going to do that right now. Uh, particularly with my six-year-old and my three-year-old, though my five-month-old is probably not far from it, they love to play hide-and-seek. It's right. It's the first game that, that any kid, I think, probably, you know, really enjoys uh, playing. And it's, it's, always, it's always fun when, when the kids will just say, oh, we want to play hide. They don't call it hide-and-seek. It's just hide. Okay, you know, and, and uh, it might be, you know, after, after they're getting out of the tub or the shower or whatever, and I'll stand in, in, in the bathroom and I'll count to 12 and, you know, the kids take off. And, and my favorite thing is when, when my three-year-old will plop down right in the center of a room underneath his towel and maybe his feet are sticking out the back of it a little bit, you know, and he's convinced that there's absolutely no way I can see him, okay? When, when not only can I see this big lump of a lion towel on the floor, but I can hear him breathing. And of course, the moment I step into the room and he can kind of peek and see my feet, he immediately starts laughing, okay? <laughs> and and it's, it, it's always a blast. And even the six-year-old, as he's become a little bit more sophisticated in his ability to hide, if I'm to be really honest I would say 90, 95% of the time before I even walk out of the bathroom, if that's where I'm, I'm counting from, I know where he's at. 
You see, often I feel like the energy that we put into hiding from God and from each other is pretty much like that type of a game of hide and seek, where it could feel like we are somehow concealed. It can feel like we have has somehow gotten away with it. And yet there's, somebody, there's one who is there who already knows where you are. And I'm convinced that there's an invitation from this same God to use our energy for better, for more productive things. Finally, how do you answer this question for you? Where are you? I want to invite you over this next week to take this question seriously and to ask yourself this question relative to God, to hear God asking it of you. Where are you? Are you hiding from God? Are you distant? Are you disappointed? Where are you? Are you in relation to God? Are you hiding from God? Are you hiding from others? Right after graduation, I had a couple of jobs that were absolute dream jobs. My day job was that I was working in the Seattle Mariners front office, and then if that weren't good enough, getting paid to watch baseball... I would moonlight in the fall uh, covering college football games for ESPN, getting you know, paid to fly around the country and watch football. Okay, really? Yeah. Hashtag L in the D, living the dream. That was me. <laughs> okay, loved what I was doing. I went on to work for a PR firm downtown. And all the while, I continued to lead a core group here at University Ministries. And even as I loved the things that I was doing, I loved my jobs. They were good things. I enjoyed the people. I enjoyed the work. There was something in leading this core group that I found myself recognizing this passion that was in me. It was, it was a time where, where drawing close to this group of guys made me aware that in the process, there was this sense of drawing close to Jesus as well. Now, it wasn't that I was doing the wrong job. I mean, you guys know how the story ends because I end up standing in front of you talking about Jesus and, and reading from the, the, the Bible. I didn't feel like there was a sense of God saying, you need to go and do ministry as much as it revealed to me a passion to just be able to talk about Jesus with people. I did not have to make a career switch. But what was happening in that moment was that it it was this touch point where as I was responding to something that I was really enjoying, I was encountering this real sense of the presence of God as I went along. And it actually, it was one of those things that as I went into the other things I was called to do, I felt all the more empowered to do that. Many of us have heard the great quote that's attributed to to Frederick Buechner, where he says, when we talk about calling and this idea of decision-making, what we do, we look for where our great passion intersects or connects with the world's great need. How many people have heard that quote before? It's a great quote, okay? Where your great passion intersects with the world's great need, but there's a second clause to it. And he says, 
and that which draws you closer to Jesus. Friends, what I want to invite us to and remind you of tonight is that when we answer this question, where are you? When we think about this, I want to offer this actually for you. Is that when you, when we engage this question, where are you? And we think about a response, what I want to tell you is that you're closer than you think. That's what the empty tomb on Easter Sunday reminds us of. That Jesus is not dead. The tomb is empty. The curtain's been ripped. And what it means is that God is on the loose. That Jesus is on the loose and pursuing you, whether you can feel it or not. Where are you? A lot closer to Jesus than you realize. Our purpose Our purpose, before we ever start getting into the nitty-gritty of God's plan, is simply to draw close to the one who has first drawn close to us. Our purpose is to draw close to the one who has first drawn close to us. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have taken the lead and that you do have a purpose for our lives. I pray that throughout this quarter, you would empower us as we engage with you, as we engage these questions. Lord, reveal to us the truth of who you are and help us know just even a little bit more the purpose for our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.